0: This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles.
1: the finish line. The Stanford Racing Team has made its way into the history books.
0: But the most important thing for me is uh, it actually doesn't matter who comes first. It matters that we as a, as a community achieve it.
1: Early in the technology, uh, a thousand flowers should bloom.
0: Welcome to Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. In this episode, we discuss with Adam Thier the role of government in regulating autonomous vehicles. Adam is a senior research fellow with the Technology Policy Program at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He's authored numerous books. His latest is Permissionless Innovation, The Continuing Case for Comprehensive Technological Freedom. We talk with Adam about the range of approaches the government can use to regulate autonomous vehicles from allowing permissionless innovation to insisting that cars get pre-approval by the government before deployment. What role should NHTSA play when the technology is still developing and it's not clear what the right rules will be? How does voluntary guidance from NHTSA work in practice? Adam has written extensively in this area and shares his views on how government can protect public safety while also permitting a nascent industry to develop without stifling innovation. Adam, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. So we'll be having a number of discussions on this podcast about the details of federal and state regulations of autonomous vehicles. But I thought today we could begin at the beginning and talk more broadly about what the role of government should be in regulating nascent technologies like autonomous vehicles. Adam, you wrote a book called Permissionless Innovation, which I encourage everyone to read. We'll put a link in the show notes. Could you start by uh, telling us a little bit about what permissionless innovation is and how it's helped the U.S. develop new technologies?
1: Certainly, I'd be happy to. Well, basically, permissionless innovation refers simply to the idea that innovation should be innocent until proven guilty, that you should have the ability as an innovator to go out And engage in trial and error experimentation with new products and services free of artificial forms of prior restraint on those innovative activities. Um, By contrast, the antithesis vision, uh, the the, the opposite vision would be something along the lines of the precautionary principle, as it's often referred to, which is a sort of form of anticipatory regulatory governance that says uh, new forms of innovation should be withheld or restrained from the market until such time as the creators of said interventions can prove that they will bring about no harms to society, individuals, institutions, or whatever else. And what I've argued in my book and in all my work on various emerging technology policy sectors and issues is that we see this clash of visions, as I call it, playing out in every single sector across the economy today. What's so interesting about the debate about autonomous vehicles and uh, autonomous technologies more generally is that this really is the perfect example of the collision of these two governance visions. Because on one hand, very clearly, automobiles have been heavily regulated for a century now, and we've taken a fairly precautionary approach, although not the most restrictive approach, I would say, in in government. But we do have a lot of restrictions on automotive innovation and a lot of regulations at the federal, state, and even local level, and of course, even international. On the other hand, our cars are increasingly becoming uh, essentially computers on wheels. They're rolling, literally rolling code down the road, and increasingly automated systems and software-based systems are are driving our cars literally for us. And increasingly, as uh, each year passes, more and more control is being assumed by those computers or algorithms uh, and removed from the hands of humans, quite literally. As that process unfolds, we are going to have to confront the governance question about who or what controls the future course of innovation in this sector. Do we treat it more like we have traditional automobiles in the analog era with a pretty heavy-handed approach to sort of top-down controls on, on automotive uh, technologies? Or do we take the internet model uh, that we started in, in the 90s with the Clinton administration, which was a much more hands-off and permissionless approach that basically said, go ahead, try it, see what happens if something fails and goes wrong. We'll come back and correct it later. And that is happening right now as we speak in the United States and across the globe.
0: And how, going to the opposite uh, model of uh, requiring permission, how did that play out with the Internet, say, in Europe, just to contrast to the approach uh, taken by the United States?
1: Yeah, generally speaking, America's experiment with permissionless innovation has been a pretty good one for uh, our companies, our consumers, and, uh, and our nation as a whole. It's aided our uh, international competitiveness in the, in the digital sector. As I tried to prove in my book, uh, through st- both statistical and anecdotal evidence, I basically said, look, if nothing else, just ask yourself, can you even name a major European internet innovator – Um, That's a household name. Uh, And by contrast, America's technology sector and innovative uh, internet entrepreneurs are household names across the globe. And that has to tell us something about sort of the experiment that played out on either side of the Atlantic Uh, sort of a transatlantic experiment in terms of governance models, where America took a more hands-off, permissionless approach, Europe took a a far more heavy-handed precautionary approach, especially with heavy-handed data directives and other regulations, and also a little bit of industrial policy steering of industry. It didn't work out so well for them. Um, It's not to say that America's model was perfect, but I think there's a lot to be said from the perspective of economics and political science that this natural real-world experiment yielded some pretty positive results for the permissionless innovation model. I think the question that a lot of people have going forward is, can that continue to hold for the internet? And to the extent that the internet starts to play into every other sector, including the automotive sector, is it going to be the appropriate model there when the potential risk might be more significant as they could be with automobiles?
0: Right. There's certainly, you know, the issues around safety, security, privacy are are really coming to the forefront when you take your computer uh, or your connected device and put it on wheels and uh, run it down the freeway at uh, 65 miles an hour. Um, so you know, obviously, autonomous vehicles are coming into an industry that is already heavily regulated. Um, there's already, you know, an agency, uh, NHTSA, as part of the Department of Transportation, that has numerous uh, rules about the various uh, physical aspects of how to how to run a vehicle. Um, how should we think about Bringing autonomous vehicles into this industry that already exists, it's sort of a new product, but in some ways, it's more than just a new product. It really changes a lot of dimensions of the vehicle. How should we think about that?
1: Yeah, great question. Well, I think the first place to start is with some real-world evidence about where we stand in terms of automobiles and public safety. To the extent we regulate automotive technologies, there are a couple of different reasons we do so. I'm not going to talk today much about the environmental angle, but that's one certain angle that we we deal a lot with. But the primary reason is safety, and and that's for good reason, because automobiles are extraordinarily dangerous technologies, and the human toll in terms of lost lives and uh, and costs is astonishing. Um, there are approximately 35, uh, 36,000 lives lost every year from car fatalities, which is, um, somewhere in the order of like 94 to 95 people dying every day in the United States, 6,500 people injured every day. Um, and the vast majority of these accidents are attributable to human error. If you think about it, this is really a public health catastrophe, and yet, we have tried for many, many decades to do something about it. And for a long time, it was working gradually, but probably not well enough. We were bringing down that death toll and the accident toll, but it was very slow incremental process. And then unfortunately, over the last couple of years, we started to see these numbers go back up due to driver distraction um, and, and a couple of other issues. Now, for the first time in a long time, we have the potential to put a significant dent, excuse the pun, (laughs) into this horrible death toll associated with human driving. And it's basically because we're going to be able to remove humans from the picture in terms of controlling These two or three tons of steel that they're they're propelling down the road at 60 plus miles per hour on average on a highway. So the reality is, is that this could end up being the greatest public health success story of our time if autonomous vehicle technology could turn this situation around. So the question for regulators is, you know, we're not operating in a vacuum here what can we do to improve upon a baseline that isn't that good? Because you could always say, well, look, what would happen if this happens with a driverless car? If it goes off and veers in this direction because the algorithm tells it to, or if it goes in that direction and hits a crowd of people, and this is the so-called trolley problem that emerges from the field of philosophical inquiry. And it's a very valid question, and it's an interesting uh, intellectual one to debate, but we can't have that discussion in a vacuum void of any sort of Uh, connection to the reality of what's happening every single day on our roads in the United States. And so that is why for many of us, this debate is so pressing and why progress is not something we should be debating lightly. We need to be thinking about how we can move forward more aggressively with safety in mind, but with the bigger picture safety uh, in mind of the public health issue associated with all of these uh, fatalities and accidents uh, for, uh, for humans.
0: Right. It, it seems like one of the challenges uh, for government in looking at how to regulate this emerging technology is just how fast everything is moving. Um, you know, I think even if you ask the brightest minds in the industry creating these new vehicles, they don't know exactly how it's all going to play out and the different standards that might emerge uh, as the technology moves quickly. Uh, so I, I think that's one of the challenges uh, for government. Um, I know you've talked a little bit about the the pacing problem, because it's obviously not just with autonomous vehicles that government has faced this challenge of how to regulate an industry that's just developing and, and moving quickly. Um, what do you think about what the federal government has done so far? I know we saw... Last year, some voluntary guidance uh, issued by NHTSA. How, how do you feel like that approach is working?
1: Yeah, well, another good question, because this really lies at the heart of so many emerging technology governance issues that I deal with today, which is how can agencies and regulators cope with the pace of the pacing problem. The pacing problem, just in case listeners aren't familiar with it, it's a very well-known phenomenon in the field of sort of the philosophy of technology. It's basically the idea that uh, technologies tend to evolve very fast, almost exponentially today, whereas public policy tends to evolve incrementally and just far slower than said technologies. Uh, some have even called this the law of disruption. Um, And uh, there's even a whole field of inquiry around this. It's something called the Collinridge Dilemma, which is that if you don't get out early in front of a technology, chances are you're not going to be able to bottle up that genie later on at all. So regulators aren't oblivious to this problem. In fact, if you look at the NHTSA guidance that they published, and you look at other public statements that they and other uh, officials have made at the state level and state DMVs, they acknowledge the pace of change. In fact, they're trying to move quite aggressively with these guidance documents precisely because they know the pace of change is so exponentially fast in this sector. They feel that if they don't do something or say something now, then it's doomed to be effective later when they actually get around to trying. The problem is, of course, no matter how hard they try, these government systems are just a slow-moving battleship, if you will, and turning it around is really, really hard. And so this is why we live in the age of what some call soft law and informal agency guidance and governance. And for me, in all the sectors I cover, whether it's not just autonomous uh, cars, but autonomous drones, robotics, AI, uh, the sharing economy, uh, advanced medical devices, the whole name of the game in these and other emerging technology sectors is soft law. We no longer effectively have formal, rigid, top-down, command-to-control, federal agencies or authorizing forms of legislation for these emerging sectors. I would argue that era is pretty much done. But we do have a huge, growing, and quite amorphous body of soft law or informal mechanisms that's evolving to fill that governance gap. And NHTSA is trying to do this for driverless cars with some rough guidance that basically suggests sort of like softly nudges industry to say, we'd sure like to see you do this and that. We're not requiring it, but we sure would like to see it. And of course, the agencies are playing a little bit of a game here. They they are operating in the shadow of hard law. They still certainly have their traditional regulatory powers, and they can make life a real living hell for a lot of companies. And the companies know that, which is why they come to the table and talk and play ball. But at the same time, the agencies know that these companies have the ability to innovate more rapidly and in other areas besides the United States. We live in a world uh, increasingly characterized by what I call global innovation arbitrage, where companies can move around their innovations and products to more hospitable jurisdictions. And we even live in an age where there's a certain amount of technological civil disobedience, where some people will put technologies uh, out there, including literally on the road, without first getting a regulator's blessing. So, these agencies are trying to play uh, – it's a little bit of a balancing act where they're trying to figure out how can we push, nudge, cajole, whatever, and offer some guidance in the form of best practices um, and hope we get industry to go along while at the same time not deterring the same innovations that we know will legitimately potentially save lives and or money. And this is the balancing act Nitz is trying to play right now for driverless cars.
0: Right. And what is the – the downside with this agency threat model. Uh, I can imagine that industry, especially in something like autonomous vehicles, prefers to have a voluntary approach at the outset so that things can be a little more fluid and they can have more freedom to innovate. Uh, given the length of time it takes for formal regulations to be put in place, they don't want to get stuck with some regulation that turns out not to be the right one but is there a a downside for industry with uh, this softer form of law?
1: Yeah, there absolutely is. Um, Even though I think most people, including myself, uh, acknowledge that this is the world we live in now, we do also acknowledge that there are some downsides. Uh, I think you can group them into two different buckets. And by the way, I'm writing a massive law review article about this very issue right now, trying to come to grips with this issue and even just trying to come to some sort of uh, grips in my own mind about how I feel about it because I'm very conflicted as someone who generally endorses the idea of a permissionless innovation approach, but understands it's not practical in every context, especially something like cars, where safety is a big issue. Um, and therefore, I like the idea of soft law as compared to hard law, sort of command and control top-down law methods of the past. On the other hand, there are some problems, as you pointed out, Michelle, which is that, first of all, you have what I'll call sort of clarity and or transparency-related issues with soft law. You know, is If it's not going by the books and it's not literally on the books, is it even law? Is it enforceable? And that leads to a second set of issues, which is the legitimacy and accountability, which is that to the extent something goes wrong or somebody bucks the system and says, well, the heck with your best practices, what happens? Or what about an innovator that isn't even around today to be at the table when we have a multi-stakeholder collaborative process? You know, it's not, it's not inconceivable that five years from now, some new autonomous vehicle entrepreneur will emerge that we're not even talking about today. I, I'm always reminding people, five, six years ago, we weren't even talking about Uber and the sharing economy, and now it's on everybody's lips. You know, things change at this pace. So if they're hammering out best practices for industry to follow circa 2016, 2017, what happens in 2023 when an entirely new player is at the table or an international player? Or what happens if somebody wants to litigate when something goes wrong in either direction? Say industry wants to litigate against government or the public wants to litigate against industry. You know, uh, is any of this actionable? If you say, I agreed to these best practices. Well, that wasn't a law. (laughs) (laughs) It leaves a lot of fuzziness. And one of the points that people on the left, right, and in between on the political spectrum generally agree upon is this, that certainty – is really essential to innovation, that you definitely want to have, from an innovator's perspective, a pretty good feel for what your standing is, both in the market and in the political system. And if the rules are sort of always changing or they're very amorphous and fuzzy, then you don't necessarily have all that certainty. And that's the hard part is, how does NHTSA create accountability, clarity, transparency, and, and legitimacy in this new world of soft law governance for driverless cars.
0: It's especially true when you end up with a change in administration, a change in the players. Uh, There may have been, you know, informal conversations, and you certainly don't want to end up with, you know, regulation by tweet uh, and sort of not knowing what the rules are, as you point out. At some point, particularly as the industry develops and, moves toward manufacturing and other things, the, the price of certainty becomes uh, more important.
1: Yeah, you, you've got it exactly right. In fact, uh, it's so funny you should mention that regulation by tweet. People might think we're joking, but the reality is is that we see agency officials and, uh, and commissioners all have their own Twitter accounts now and frequently will elaborate upon Guidance that they put out, or best practices, or even just workshop reports, and suggest that this creates some sort of precedential uh, value for industry to follow. And I'll just give you a quick anecdote that's kind of funny. Last year, the FTC had a, a long tweet storm following a uh, release of a, uh, a report uh, that they came out with after a workshop. And I don't know how many dozens of tweets they put out before I finally asked. Uh, whoever was writing it, who didn't identify themselves, by the way, I said, does any of this constitute official agency guidance for industry to follow? I did not get a response to my question. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think a lot of administrative laws, you know, sticklers for administrative law and good government processes are probably worried about the answer to that question because nobody's answered.
0: And, you know, the whole point of the Administrative Procedure Act was to try to give – industry, you know, a formal process, a way to have input before things became regulations and before they were enforceable. Um, And, you know, if if everything is soft law and it's being thrown out there by tweets from people you don't even know if they have the authority to do it, it's really hard to know what, what rule you're supposed to be following.
1: Yeah that's exactly right and again from the industry perspective or the innovator perspective this isn't happening uh, you know uh, in a vacuum either they understand that there could be a scenario that would be far worse what would be far worse is a sort of preemptive, precautionary, top-down, pre-market approval regime that says you have to come get a formal blessing in the form of a new rulemaking before you can release any new algorithmic tweaks to your software behind your driverless cars. That would be the disaster scenario for innovators in this space.
0: Especially since it might take two years to get it.
1: <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. And, and And frankly, I think the regulators understanding this – will sort of hang that thread in the room you know, and just sort of let it sit there and then hope that industry comes to the table and hammers out a deal. And so the the way I've put it in one of my papers is that the sword of Damocles need not fall to nonetheless be effective. It just needs to be in the room. And if the the sword's hanging above the neck of a a, a company, you better believe they're going to play some ball because they don't want the grief that goes along with going through a formal rulemaking process that, as you just suggested, could take Couple of years, maybe more than a couple of years.
0: I wonder if there's a an intermediate uh, type of of regulatory process, and I, I'm sure these are the the kinds of things that uh, you are thinking about writing about. Would be, yeah. Yeah. you know, how do you how do you bridge this gap between a, a formal Administrative Procedures Act kind of rulemaking process that takes two years, and the issues around soft law and lack of certainty, is there, you know, is there a middle ground? Are there other things that the government could do to try to deal with this problem, particularly in these these nascent, you know, fast-moving industries?
1: Yeah, the closest we've gotten is the kind of thing that uh, the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, or the NTIA, has been doing over the last couple of years in various contexts. Uh, they have been trying to create Quote unquote multi-stakeholder processes for a variety of new emerging technologies, mostly from the perspective of data security and data privacy concerns, and saying for technology X or Y, say something like biometric technology, which is something they've covered, uh, like facial recognition, uh, or Internet of Things and cybersecurity. They are inviting groups of people to the table, so-called stakeholders. This is the government and the NTIA doing this is what I'm talking about. They are then seating the table with affected interests, not only industry, but also concerned interests from, uh, you know, privacy advocates and security advocates and academics and so on. And then they are charging them with a responsibility to hammer out some best practices for innovators to follow. And then they are trying to cajole the industry and the innovators to get on board and to essentially sign off on those principles to make at least an informal, if not a very formal promise to government to follow through and abide by those principles. This is the merging of essentially the traditional soft law agency threats model with also a different variant of soft law at the opposite end of the spectrum, which would be essentially a a form of quasi-industry self-regulation. It's not pure self-regulation, which would involve the government at all. It's rather self-regulation where the the government steers an industry rows. And then on the opposite end with the agency threats part, the government is doing this saying, well, you better come to the table or else. They don't always say what or else is, but it certainly does a good job of getting people to the table. And this is basically the playbook that NITS is trying to follow to some extent with what they're doing on autonomous vehicle technology right now. Now, they don't have – any formal sign off from anybody but industry in the meantime has been coming up with its own best practices and signing off to them through like trade associations and other types of bodies and so we see we're seeing we're witnessing the emergence of a new governance structure for technology in the United States. We don't have good terminology for it because it's very different than the binary approaches we used in the past, which was either we were all in on regulation or all in on market processes. And there were some middle ground things, but they were very technocratic, very techno-specific, like FCC, FAA, FDA things like that. In in Europe And in other countries, you've seen other models emerge like this a long time ago. They even have a name for bodies that have emerged to do some of these things called quangos, quasi-autonomous, non-governmental organizations. And we don't have quangos here in the United States for the most part. The closest you have is something like Underwriters Laboratory, which does a lot of certification for dangerous electronics uh, or other types of technical devices, but isn't a government body. And yet we've delegated an important safety task to that body, and one that we now take for granted works fairly effectively. And it's not even doing it with the blessing, the formal blessing through law. It's just doing it sort of informally with regulars saying, yeah, you're doing a good job, thumbs up, or here's maybe how you could do things better at UL. But that's the model that I think is going to come out of what's happening right now at NHTSA. I don't exactly know what the body will be that does this on an ongoing basis. That's the hard part. But at least initially, this is what they're trying to essentially construct is this sort of a soft law, and formal governance, multi-stakeholder, best practices oriented model for autonomous vehicle technology.
0: That's interesting. And, you know, I guess it might be different bodies for different pieces of it, like privacy or, you know, other things.
1: Yeah. Of course, that creates a little bit of a mess for innovators trying to figure out, well, who do we go talk to now or whatever else? you know say what you want about centralized uh, bureaucracy and regulation the reality is you at least knew what door to knock on to figure out you know an answer you wouldn't always get your answer and the answer you got you might not like but part of the confusion of the new emerging world of soft law that we're facing is that there could be dozens of regulators you have to talk to because let's not forget the state level right This is all happening at DMVs right now across America. We just saw Michigan and California and I think uh, Illinois or Ohio, you know, you see these new reports coming all the time about like driverless car guidance from the, you know, Pennsylvania DMV.
0: (laughs) Well, it's interesting because, you know, the downside of NHTSA not issuing a formal regulation is that it doesn't preempt the state's from doing whatever mandatory regulations or soft law regulation that they want to do. Um, Exactly. So you can end up with multiple layers of of regulatory schemes uh, in that case.
1: Yeah, the only interesting caveat to that, I agree with what you just said, but one interesting caveat is that NHTSA did suggest if you read between the lines, heck, you don't even need to read between the lines. You can read the lines directly, and it says basically – as cars become more about algorithmic systems and are, as I suggested, sort of like you know computers on wheels, it takes the driver literally out of the equation. And by taking the driver out of the equation, it removes the primary regulatory hook that states used to regulate vehicles in the past. NHTSA says this in its guidance, which is essentially, I want to argue, a little bit of a de facto power grab that they just conducted without many people noticing. They basically said... The more algorithmic your car, the more we control it as opposed to state DMVs. Now, it's again, that's not the formal rule, but to the extent that NHTSA takes the lead and suggests that, well, these are all just like mechanical processes in the vehicle that we've always regulated here at the federal level, they can maybe suggest that there's no longer as much of a, uh, of a realm for states to be acting. I don't know what they'll do to preempt. That really should require congressional authorization. If you're going to preempt the states, It would be optimal if it came from Congress and utilize a constitutional rationale under the Commerce Clause, probably. But it's not what NHTSA is really doing here. They're basically just saying, hey, we we regulate mechanical systems at NHTSA. You don't do that at your DMV.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, basically saying that if if the motor vehicle itself is doing the driving, well, that's the driver. (laughs) It's a piece of equipment. So let's talk a little bit about Uh, the new regulatory tools, uh, when NHTSA came out with this guidance, they they had this voluntary piece where they talked about a a safety assessment letter process, but then they also went on to suggest that they might seek some additional uh, approvals and tools that they might use in the future. Uh, And one of those was uh, pre-market approval. Maybe you could Uh, explain what the self-certification regime is that the automotive industry has today and what NHTSA suggested uh, might be on the table in the future?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to try not to oversimplify here. It's a very complex uh, regulatory regime. But generally speaking, the NHTSA regime, uh, we can contrast with something like the Federal Aviation Administration, which as far as sort of top-down more command and control regulatory regimes go, I would say the Federal Aviation Administration and the Food and Drug Administration probably have two of the most restrictive regulatory approaches for their respective sectors and technologies, because you have to get prior approval and blessing before you can get almost anything done when it comes to aviation or food and drugs. Now, NITS is very different. With NHTSA, you can literally put your cars out there on the road as an innovator without going through a strict prior approval regime for each new model or innovation. But we do have federal motor motor vehicle safety standards that set some baselines. And then we also have given NHTSA very aggressive recall authority. So if anything does go wrong, they can put out a a national recall and say, we're pulling this car from the market because uh, it's got this brake problem or this airbag problem or seatbelt problem. These are different regulatory regimes. They're both regulatory regimes, but the NHTSA model at least leaves the door open to a certain amount of permissionless innovation, if you will, guided by some federal safety standards, with buttressed by the idea of a recall policy. Whereas the FAA model is pre-market approval, Uh, And it basically says, thou shalt not until you you come to Washington and get somebody's blessing. In its guidance on driverless cars, NHTSA suggested that one thing that we might want to consider is moving to a pre-market approval authority kind of regime for driverless car technology. And for many of us, uh, and I filed comments on this, uh, this was quite concerning because this is basically the FAA type model, but for cars. And to have that regime for cars would have some certain costs. It would have some major costs because, as we've already pointed out, it can take years to get these things through a process. And we're not operating in a vacuum where there's no harms being done. There are great harms being done to society right now because of cars on the road. And so one of the things we try to do when we filed on this is suggest like, look, if you're going to engage in a shift, a regulatory shift like that, you at least have to acknowledge that there could be a lot of fatalities in the short term while you're waiting to get the perfect autonomous vehicle uh, on the road in the long term. And that might not be worth – it might not be worth a sacrifice Work think making because we might not get more safety in the long term in the short term losing so many lives in the process. And if the FAA is the model, well, and it's even acknowledged this in its, in its guidance, we have documentation from the FAA itself that says FAA certification for new aircraft is a three- to five-year process, and that their most recent certification for a plane, a big plane, the Boeing 787 Dreamliner, took eight, uh, eight years and an estimated 200,000 hours of FAA staff time to review. So... I would hope that whatever we think about the debate about driverless cars is the right answer. That we would agree that waiting three to five years to get approval of these new technologies is not the right regime. That we can, we almost certainly have to do it quicker than that. And even I think NHTSA acknowledges that, which is why I think really when they said this in the guidance, it, it went back. It goes back to my sort of Damocles point. They're putting this in there to hedge. They're putting a dinner to say, like, look, we still have power. We still have authority. And you know what? We could ask for more if we wanted to. So be careful. But I don't think this is where they're going. I think this is just part of a negotiating tactic.
0: And the FAA, I mean, there are only a handful of airplane manufacturers, right? And and exactly. numbers of models. It, it's hard to imagine the amount of agency resources you would need to accommodate all the different uh, automotive manufacturers and different models that they would come up with, and those are just the manufacturers that exist today. There could be a lot a lot more in the future
1: exactly right. Not only that, but the other big difference here is that as we move towards a world of autonomous vehicles with you know constant algorithmic tweaks to improve them, you're going to f- be facing a situation where a car is being – a car's software is being updated on almost as regular of a basis as the software in your phone. And the software in our phone, we have rolling updates now. These things happen when we're not even thinking about them to improve our phone or improve the applications on our phone. Those things are not going through proof market approval. And likewise, we're going to face a situation with cars. In fact, we already do today with Tesla. If you go to the Tesla website and you look at their downloads for basically the software that goes into your vehicle, and those over the year updates that are happening for the software in Tesla are happening every, you know, on not necessarily a daily basis, but sometimes on a weekly or, or a bi monthly basis. And you have to ask yourself if every time they do that and tweak their software, their algorithms to improve their processes and make them safer, if every time they do that, they have to go and get some sort of a blessing from some agency, probably NHTSA, maybe 50 state regulators what will that do to the pace of innovation and correspondingly to overall vehicle safety if we can't get these technologies out there faster to solve the problems that human-driven cars create?
0: And I think the, the other issue seems to be, you know, how will the regulators judge what is the right software, what is the right uh, hardware, what is the right technology in order to give a pre-market approval. I mean, I think in Europe, they have certain type approval processes in the automotive space. Um, But I think there are very specific regulations governing performance and there are metrics and thresholds and you're sort of measuring against a knowable standard. And here, as we were saying earlier, the technology is changing and I think we don't know what the right answer is going to be uh, in terms of how cars are going to work and different approaches on the hardware and the software side. So it's hard to know how you would make that judgment. Uh, I guess it would be an engineering judgment uh, more so than, than you know, checking a box.
1: Yep, I think that's exactly right. I think this is a very difficult determination to make, you know, in a, in a ex-ante kind of preemptive uh, determination about, like, this is good code. This is safe code. I mean, you can obviously try to create some basic guidelines, but if you try to get into the, the technocratic weeds of, like, what constitutes the right algorithm for driverless cars, that, and that's a hopeless task. I don't have any faith in the regulatory process to solve that. It's hard enough for the innovators out there in the wild to be doing it, and they're trying to do it in real time by evaluating every incident and saying, here's how we now tweak the system again to improve it. And every single week, you see some tweak like that to the Tesla system, and correspondingly, that's now going to happen with all of our vehicles. I would also add one other wrinkle to this, which is that when something does go wrong with the code, it's not like we won't hold these companies to blame for it if it can be shown that there really was some sort of negligence here, that there was some sort of serious deficiency that they should be accountable for. That can happen both through the regulatory process, either through a straight-out recall or maybe some sort of penalties after the fact, or we've still got the tort system. I mean, the automotive sector is one of the most litigated sectors already in the United States. And I don't necessarily see that going away. In fact, I'm a little concerned that, you know, it may be be too much litigation on this front at times, but the reality is, is that we're going to have torts um, to, to, to deal with some of these questions of algorithmic accountability that are, I think, if you read the legal literature on these issues, a lot of legal theorists and philosophers are wringing their hands like, oh, my gosh, what about algorithmic transparency? What about algorithmic accountability? How do we know what's in this code? And, you know, my answer to that is we don't. We don't know. We, we don't have any idea. And this is the same thing you can say about all computer code, all algorithms. But instead, in America at least, we rely on the process of trial and error experimentation to sort of see what works, and then what doesn't, we try to do better. Or if it's really bad and we really mess up, we litigate. And I think and hope that that will be the process eventually we'll get to for driverless cars, so long as we don't have some sort of a preemptive strike like the one that NHTSA hinted about with a pre-market approval regime, which honestly would require congressional legislation anyway. I don't see how NHTSA could do this unilaterally. You'd almost absolutely have to have a congressional law like something like the, the Federal Driverless Car Act of 2017 or something that gave NHTSA that power because they just don't have it right now.
0: And, you know, I, I think you make a good point about, you know, existing laws. I mean, some people might say, well, gee, how are we going to know these cars are safe if there's not some government stamp of approval? But I think, you know, we do have a pretty robust uh, a regime in the in the tort area, uh, as well as with uh, recalls for managing problems when they occur. I guess, you know, the other thing that Nitsa mentioned is, the idea that pre-market approval might somehow promote consumer acceptance and give people a sense that that cars are safe. Uh, what what do you think about that approach?
1: Yeah, I'm not going to mix my words on this. I think that is probably one of the most intellectually bankrupt arguments that I see repeated consistently across. Uh, the literature and uh, agency reports when people are advocating preemptive regulation of new technology. They make the argument that we can only build public trust and mass adoption by having a heavy-handed regulatory regime that restricts innovation preemptively. I'm like, you know, I'm sorry, there's a conflict there inherent in what they're proposing. We're not even going to have the technology that they say the public will grow to trust regulation if you have a heavy-handed regime that takes it years to develop. I mean, we did not take this approach for the internet or for computers or for any host of many modern, uh, innovative uh, technologies, our smartphones. You know, public trust in the internet and the computing world and smartphones, I mean, say what you want, it's not perfect. But the reality is people have adopted the internet, computers, and smartphones faster than any other technology in human history. We did not have an overarching Federal Internet Commission or Federal Internet Act or a act or anything else to accomplish that. So there's something to be said here for allowing experimentation or a little dose of permissionless innovation. And I think the argument that you can't get consumer buy-in without heavy-handed regulation is just flatly contradicted by the reality of the emerging technology sectors around us today.
0: And I think, you know, we have market forces that are very powerful and, you know, companies know if they're going to spend a lot of money and put this new technology out there that they're going to need customers and people are going to have to uh, feel comfortable with it. So, I, you know, the market is itself, uh, you know, a fairly good regulator. And so I think that's the question uh, that we're going to see is how, how do we build the case for consumer adoption?
1: Indeed. And, you know, I I think that's a very excellent point, especially when you uh, uh, complement it with the idea of reputational effects. I mean, the reality is, is that more than anything else today, what most innovators fear is that somebody else will do it better and win more, you know, hearts and minds and then wallets over. And, you know, I've seen this happen again and again in other sectors uh, where I've written in the past about concerns about the supposed dominant companies of, of each era of the Internet already. I mean, for God's sakes, all the ink that was spilled over AOL Time Warner in the late 90s and how it was the media behemoth to be feared. And, <laughs> you know, and, and people thought that initially that, you know, we would only see, you know, certain companies be the players in the automotive sector. And now all of a sudden you've got Tesla and Uber as two of the most innovative companies in the field of autonomous vehicle technology. I mean, again, these are companies we weren't talking about five years ago. This is an astonishing thing. The churn in the marketplace is really astonishing for emerging technologies. It's at times a little scary, uh, but the reality is, is that it's still a good thing because we've got new players, new choices, new competition, keeps older incumbent companies on their toes and innovating. I mean, there's a reason why Ford and Chevy and everybody else is really getting active in this game now after many years of people talking about it being a possibility. It's precisely because Tesla, Google, Uber got involved and started winning a lot of uh, kudos for it and proved that it could work. So yeah, I think there's a good reason to to give this market and to give innovation some breathing room. But I want to be clear, I'm not an anarchist. I'm not advocating no government role. Uh, As my new paper on this will will make clear, soft soft law is here to stay, and there's absolutely going to be some role for agencies and regulators to play in terms of helping to guide this process and to, at the margins, maybe even nudge a little bit about here's how you could do things a little better. But when I was testifying in front of Nits on this, uh, I said then what I'll say now, which is that they've got to pick their battles wisely. They can't just go in there with a long wish list of all the things they would like to see industry do and all the ways they'd like the way to, the world to work and the ways that they think would be best. The reality is, is they can't control the world of innovation and automotive uh, technology and autonomous systems like the way they maybe once could. And so what I told them is, you know, you got to really think hard about where you think the greatest risks to public health or safety lie and where you can make an honest contribution that will change things for the better and not the worse. It's hard to know exactly what that is in this context, but I suppose it comes down to things like maybe good security standards. Like we haven't talked much about cybersecurity and autonomous systems, but that's a huge and quite legitimate concern. You know, could our cars be hacked? Um, You know, there has already been legislation proposed to deal with this by uh, Senator Markey. It didn't go anywhere, but that's the level of concern over this. It was a 60 Minutes report about this, and that really could deter public adoption okay, what is NHTSA going to do about it? Well, that's a secondary question, but it's something that they could focus on as the primary question if they wanted to move forward with something that could help industry maybe coalesce around some really good sound cybersecurity principles for driverless car technology.
0: Well, it's going to be really interesting to see how this all develops. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Adam. This has been a great discussion. I really enjoyed hearing your thoughts on this.
1: It's been my pleasure.
0: Thanks to Adam for joining the show and to all of you for listening. You can find our show notes on our Medium publication called Smarter Cars. We look forward to seeing you next time.